the laying on of hands and commissioning members of your church family to go into all the world to people of completely different ethnicity, culture, and religious beliefs? Where did all this cross-cultural mission activity get started? Why should we as a church be involved in this outreach today, and how do we get direction in this strategic mission? Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, takes us to Acts chapter 13 for the answers. The passage that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 13, I listened to what I did many, many years ago, and one of the specific requests that I gave at that time to our church family is that the Lord would help us to be able to lay hands on some of our young men, and they would go out just the way Paul and Barnabas are going to go out in our chapter in Acts 13. Wynn is one of our young men. He was in our Awana program, Sunday school program, and he just got back from the Middle East. And he's finished a two-year mission trip. And we just need to give Wynn a warm welcome home. He needs encouragement. He's just like a soldier that's come back from the battlefield. And he has some incredible, exciting things to share about how the Lord used him. But he also needs to kind of reacclimate to life here. He is a fulfillment of Acts 13 today, right now in our church family. And I also want you to know that a few weeks ago, we, right here in this stage, we had Jonathan Trope. You gathered together, you laid hands on him. He right now is in Asia. We laid hands on him, we sent him out. He's seeking to reach believers that are in Asia and connecting with the body of Christ, but also reaching out like we saw five of our kids baptized that just received Christ a couple of weeks ago. That's what Jonathan's trying to do, so we really need to be in prayer for him, and that's what Acts 13 is going to teach us today. Some of you are saying, Dave, well, there's enough problems right here. Anybody ever feel that? Why should we send missionaries? And the word missionary is often equated with American imperialism and everything. That's not at all what I'm talking about. What the Scripture means by a missionary is someone that's on target to go into all the world and present the good news that Christ died on the cross and he rose again. And what they would do is they went cross-culturally. Like all of you need to go to your friends this week. You need to go in your businesses. You need to be reaching out and we'll be building on that. That's where we start, in our Jerusalem. But the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses beginning in your hometown of Jerusalem. Then you'll reach into a little bit farther out Judea. Then you'll start going a little bit cross-culturally in Samaria. And then it says to the uttermost parts of the earth, I want you to realize we have such incredibly powerful good news and the Holy Spirit wants to move in our church family that the Lord anoints different individuals to go what we call cross-culturally, that they go into a group of people that speak different languages, have different customs, that wouldn't hear about Jesus unless we tell them. A friend of mine, Jerry Wofford, shared that one of his friends in India that is out there in India right now, was in northern India, and he was sharing with some of the Indians on the street, and he said to one of the Indians on the street, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? And this young man that worked with Jerry Wofford said, this is the first time in all of my life and all of my travels that there was absolutely no connection at all. Even in Hinduism, Jesus is a really big teacher. He's a big religious teacher. And this fellow was saying it was it's unbelievable to be in a city talking to people. They had not a clue of who Jesus was. That's why 
you need to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And what we want to find out today is where did this mission, this idea of going cross-culturally, where did that come from? What initiated that? And where it started in the church of Antioch, and in Acts chapter 13, we begin reading like this. It says that they had all these teachers. If you look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and this will be about the most important thing we do this morning because this is God speaking, and this is what the early church did in the first century. They'd receive a letter, a history from Luke, and they would read it, and God would speak to them. That's why we have it in our canonical scripture. So in a church family like this, they gather together in the first century, usually on Sunday night, because they'd work during the day, and they began to celebrate Resurrection Day, and when they gathered together, they would do all the things that we've been doing today. They'd have baptisms, they'd pray, but they'd also read God's word. Look what it says. In the church of Antioch, there were prophets. The church in Antioch was a church that was now, the city of Antioch is in modern-day Turkey. It was the third largest city in the Roman world, you went Rome, Alexandria, Antioch. It was a city that was close to the Mediterranean Sea. They had a port capital, and they're a very mixed population. So you'll understand, and what's important about this church is Dr. Luke has already taught us that believers from Jerusalem that were Jewish were pushed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. Some of them went to Cyprus, and then they went north to Antioch, And what they did is they presented the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again in the synagogues. But then they did an incredible thing. They started presenting it to the Gentiles. Instead of the Aramaic Hebrew speakers, they started reaching outside their Jewishness and they started presenting the gospel to their friends, their pagan friends. And incredibly, God's spirit started to move in this church so that the early Christians were first called Christians in the city. And so now Dr. Luke is giving us a description of some of the major teachers in that group. That's what he goes on to say. Now, there were prophets and teachers. Prophets were those in the first century church that had the Holy Spirit directly teaching them from the Old Testament, but also giving them understanding into what Jesus had done. And the New Testament prophets produced books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, the book we're reading, and all of your New Testament. That's why we study the book of Acts today. Dr. Luke was a first century prophet that was anointed by the Spirit to give us this breathed out text that we can learn about what was happening in the first century church. So the prophets were those in the church of Antioch that were receiving this inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Not just giving predictions about the future, but teaching you how to live and teaching me how to live. Second of all, you had teachers. And those would be those that are bringing together, stabilizing your faith, helping you to understand Genesis through Malachi, the Old Testament scripture, and relating that to what Jesus was doing. And the church had this marvelous balance of this prophetic word, this powerful declaration, probably a lot of it to do with Christ dying on the cross and rising again, and the meaning of receiving Christ as your Savior. And then as people received Christ, they were taught by the teachers. And that's what we want to do. We want to have a balance of having evangelists reaching out and causing new babies to be born, and then having teachers that rise up in our midst that are teaching. It tells us who some of those teachers were. It's fascinating. Barnabas is the first one on the list. He was the lead teacher in Antioch. He was a Jerusalem Jew that was a son of encouragement. He's originally from Cyprus. He has connections in Cyprus. 
So Dr. Luke tells us that he's taken the lead and he connects with the last guy on the list who is Saul, who was a trained Jew that was also very fluent in the Greek culture in Tarsus where he was raised as a kid. Saul has gone back to Tarsus and then Barnabas went and found Paul, Saul, and brought him back to teach this church. So you have Barnabas at the beginning of the list, and Saul, you know him usually as Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He's at the end of the list. Powerful teachers. Then it also says that we have Simeon called Niger. Simeon was a dark-skinned man, so they have interracial teachers in Anak. This is a cosmopolitan city. So we learn in the first century church they're already not just homogeneous, they're reaching out to different racial groups, and one of their teachers was Simeon, the dark-skinned man. That's what they called him as a nickname, Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa. It's all been in the news, Algeria, Libya. That's all part of the ancient area of Cyrene in the Roman Empire. So you've got people that were originally from this northern part of Africa. Now they're up there. The Holy Spirit's come upon them in what's now modern-day Turkey, and they're teaching the church family of Antioch. Here's a really strange one. Manian was a close childhood friend of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas cut John the Baptist's head off. Now, how many of you think that one of Herod Antipas' friends who cut John the Baptist's head off, who in the trial of Jesus cooperated with Pilate to crucify Jesus, what chance in the world would there be that Manaean, one of Herod Antipas' friends, would be teaching in the church of Antioch and he's a born-again Christian? That's incredible. That's what Dr. Luke is telling us, that the Holy Spirit is on fire. And he reached into this, this guy that I never dream in a million years. Herod Antipas is the worst tyrant imaginable. And God struck him down. He's like Herod Agrippa that we said he's about the last time we were together. But the Holy Spirit reached in. You never know who the Holy Spirit's going to reach in and touch. So we've got this weird Manaean who was raised by Herod Antipas as a close friend, but God came upon him, and now he's the father of Jesus, and he's one of the major leaders in the church of Antioch. Then we have Saul that I already told you about. Saul, this is the apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. He started out as a Jewish guy, that incredibly orthodox, spoke fluent Hebrew, very eloquent in Greek language as well, trained under Gamaliel, the leading scholar of the first century. And the Lord touched his life, and he spent the rest of his life as a cross-cultural missionary. Like, he's the one I would have never chosen. You need a Gentile guy. You need a guy that, that is, that's Greek. And, and instead, the Lord chooses this guy that spent his life persecuting Christians in the early part of his life, and then he becomes the most eloquent, powerful movement used by the Spirit like a mighty wind all over the Roman world. And we're here today. His writings like Romans the First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians are the bedrock of the New Testament. That's all. Now, while they were worshiping the Lord in fasting, and I want you to see this in verse 2, we think of worshiping as what we did in praise and worship, and that is part of it. We call it in English, worshiping. And in English, the word means we sing, okay? And I want you to realize that that is part of what worship is. Like the Psalms, you have praise Psalms, and they call them hymns. You also have crying Psalms, lamentations, where they pour out their heart in sorrow, and they sing sad songs. And that's part of the worship. In fact, in the Old Testament church, they had, they had people that did nothing but play instruments and sing in choirs. And that was a powerful worship thing. In the New Testament, we can have it even happen more powerfully. 
in the New Testament church, but that's not what this word means. It doesn't mean that Paul and Barnabas and all these other teachers were singing. The word that's used there is that they were serving. They were working among the people. They were teaching them the Bible. The Old Testament was their Bible. There were other leaders that were coordinating all the things in the first century church, meeting the needs of children, and on and on it went. They were serving. By the way, this is where we get the word liturgy from. That's the same word, the Greek word liturgy, that some of you that were raised in high church, you think it's a particular ritual that you go through on Sunday morning. But I want you to know that originally it was the work of the people. This church of Antioch is alive, and the church is involved, and their leaders are involved in serving. And in teaching the people that Paul and Barnabas are going with Simon and Niger and all these different guys are going from house to house, equipping the believers and, and having training sessions, just like we've done today. It says while they were doing that, the second thing they were doing is they were fasting. Now, in the New Testament, you don't fast because God's mean and he won't listen to you unless you really hurt yourself and you get really hungry and then God will pay attention to you. That's not what the Scripture teaches. That's what religion teaches you. What the scriptures teach, all of you know when you get really burdened about something, you can't eat. All of you can remember a time in your life when you really get burdened about things and it grips you. It happens in business when you're pressured and you feel under, man, I'm in a great crisis. You can't eat. That's what fasting did. The early church would get so burdened about the needs around them when crises arrived that they would have times where they didn't eat and they would pray. In the midst of that is when it happened. Look what it says happened. It says that the Holy Spirit came upon them. While they were serving, worshiping, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit talked to them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, so that after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hand on them and sent them out. Exactly what I just described to you. And the very first thing I want you to learn from this passage, some of you say, Dave, how can we have life? Like one of the challenges of the morning has been we don't want to die. We want to be, keep reaching out. We want to have new people born again into God's family. We want to make sure that this thing is hot for the spirit. How do you do that? As an American, what I say is what we really need to do first is we need to have a strategic plan. We need to get the best minds. We need to find out what they're doing at Harvard University. We need to find out how to do this. And I want you to know that we're going to have a really good plan. The Apostle Paul had a really good strategic plan. He went to the major cities of the ancient world, but I want you to know that it didn't begin there. I would have never come up with what Antioch did. Because what Antioch did, they were serving the Lord and they were fasting and praying. And the Holy Spirit said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your very best teacher, Barnabas. And when I take your very best teacher, Saul, and I want you to send them away. Now, that's nutty. Absolutely stupid. Because everybody knows you need a strong base. You need to keep things hot at home. In fact, some of you are saying today, man, we got enough problems right here in Midlothian, and we can't worry about somewhere else. You wouldn't be sitting here this morning unless the church of Antioch was fasting and praying. And they listened to the Holy Spirit. Our church will die. We will die. I'm in tons of churches. I speak in tons of churches that have all old people, and there's only five. In college, I remember speaking to churches where there'd be five old people there, and that was it, in a gigantic building. That could happen here. You say, Dave, what's going to keep it from happening? Right here. We're praying. We're fasting. And we're depending upon the Holy Spirit, the wind of the Spirit, 
and you're asking that Holy Spirit to show up, then you make the decisions that the Holy Spirit asks us to make. And in this case, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to take Barnabas, your best teacher, and Saul, your best teacher. I want you to send them out. And that's what they did. They laid hands on them. And by the way, I want you to know, like, they didn't collect offerings, as far as I know, to send them out. In fact, they go out, they make tents, they work. Some of you have the idea, like, this is only for professional missionaries. I believe one of the big challenges in the 21st century is some of you, your companies pay you to go to Korea. They pay you to go to China. They pay you to go to Africa. They pay you to go to India. Man, you're a missionary. Jesus is in your heart. That's what Paul and Barnabas were. Paul was a tent maker. He was a business guy. Everywhere he went, until things got established, Paul wouldn't even take money until the believers started growing. And even then, if they weren't really doing it by grace, he would say, I don't want your money. So he would make tents. But he was connecting with people. You'll see, through your business, you connect with people. So the Holy Spirit moves this church. The very first thing I want you to learn from this passage is that God's power and plan for mission, for reaching cross-culturally, is going to come by the fervent, committed fasting and prayer. That's what ignites the gospel. That's what produces the open doors. When I first came to Midlothian, the Lord took our very best teacher, He took our teacher that founded our group. He had the first Bible study. And when we were just eight little families, the Lord says, okay, I want Ed and Corley Murray to go to Eastern Europe. And they were gone. And that's why we're here today, because there was a group of people. What I want you to know is that's not a past plan. You did that with Wynn. We just did that with Jonathan. Who's going to be the one that the Holy Spirit moves to go out and to touch life? That's where it begins. The second thing I want you to know, they go down to the port city, which is 15 miles from Antioch. They go down to the port city. Then they sail about 125 miles or so to Cyprus, and they land on the eastern side of the island. And when they get to the island, if you notice what it says here, it says that they went to the synagogue. It says when they arrived at Salamis, that's on the eastern side of the island, they proclaimed the word of God. That's what we need to do. And that means that Jesus died on the cross for since he rose again, and we believe in that gospel message. And all of the Old Testament scriptures, that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And they do it in the Jewish synagogue. I'm going to tell us that John Mark is with them. That's going to be a story later on in the book of Acts. So just keep that in mind. So there's three sidekicks from the church of Antioch. Say, what did they do? This is a smart plan. They didn't just go out in the three corners of Salamis and start handing out tracts. Now, I've done that a ton of times. And in, in New York City and Philadelphia, that worked really good. Sometimes even in Dallas, it worked. And the Lord even led somebody in the first service. That's what I'm going to do the next time I go to the hairdresser. I'm going to hand out tracts. That's really a good thing to do. But I want you to know they also have a strategic plan. They went to the synagogue. Where do you think you'd find people that might be interested in the Messiah? In an island where you haven't been. In the synagogue. The early church understood the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Where it's the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the very first thing in the book of Acts they do is they go to the synagogue. That's where the Jews are. And this is how you can know whether or not people really believe in your church the good news. Because some of you are sitting here saying, well, Jews don't need to hear about Christianity. They don't need to hear about Jesus. Because they have their own tradition. That's what religion says. And by the way, they've got a great tradition. They don't have a resurrected Savior unless they have Jesus. You hear what I just said? Jesus is Jewish. All the Old Testament Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, point 
to Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. It was all completed at least 300 years before Jesus came. And it said he would be born in Bethlehem, said that he would be braved in obscurity up in the northern part of Galilee. It said that he would give sight to the blind. He would even raise the dead. And then it says he'll be pierced, he'll be cut off, he'll be crucified. And then Daniel 9 said, he'll rise again from the dead. And Isaiah 53 said, all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The punishment that we deserved was laid upon him. And by his stripes, by the whiplash, by the piercings, by being on Calvary, we are healed and forgiven. Amen? Your Jewish friends need to hear that. They don't need to hear religion. Paul and Barnabas are giving this model. They go to the Jews. They're involved in the synagogue. And so we can be praying, Lord, give us wisdom, give us insight about our contacts. Some of you in business, you'll be with Jewish people this week. And the Holy Spirit wants to use those contacts to help you to bring the Mashiach, the anointed one, Jesus, to try to clear up something, to get the gospel across to them. That's the movement of the Spirit. It's exciting the way he moves our lives around to bring us in contact with some of his physically chosen people the Jewish people. The third thing I want you to get, how many of you believe that the politicians are hopeless? They are all a bunch of crooks. They're all a bunch of liars. They're all going to hell. Did you read what we read in the text? What did God's inspired word say? The Romans were ruled by an unbelieving, pagan, idolatrous Roman emperor. But Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus, was an intelligent man. And he wanted to hear the word of God. You know, as you go out into business this week, as you go out and work in the different political parties, you know what you're going to find out? You're going to find out there's some people that are intelligent. And they want to know the truth. And they're waiting for someone to get the word of God across to them. Do you believe that? It's going to totally change your spirit. For the next year, politics is going to be top burner. And it's going to be high drama. And we, the church family, can pray, Lord, where are the Sergius Paulus's that need to hear that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Old Testament predicted hundreds of years before Jesus came what his career would be, and that he would die on the cross for sins, that he would be pierced for our iniquities, that he would be bruised for our wickedness and our sin, and the Lord would lay upon him the punishment that we deserve. There's all kinds of politicians that need that truth to be declared to them. As you do that, as you get involved in the political world, the same thing will happen in the business world. You're also going to find people that lie. They use tricks. They can do incredibly powerful, looks like wondrous, powerful things. If you would have been in the court of Sergius Paulus, Alamus would have gathered all of you together, and he would have levitated things. He would have given prophecies that predicted the future. He would have done all kinds of things. He could have wowed you with his sleight of hand. He was a liar and a false prophet. He was a cunning trickster. How many of you have ever met someone in the political world, in the business world, that lies, that has incredible skill with their mouth, that has incredible skill in motivating people and controlling them, and they call themselves, I'm the son of salvation. Like, one thing I want you to look for 
If you hear any politician that says, I'm the answer, I can solve all of America's economic problems. I can solve all of America's educational problems. I can make us safe internationally. I can make sure that there'll never, never be a 9-11 on my watch. I'm the son of salvation. As soon as you hear that, you go, Elemus, because it's a lie. Because nobody can give that until Jesus comes. Amen? I want you to really get a hold of that. But I want you to realize that there's going to be some politicians that are trying to bring justice in the courts. They're going to try to bring fairness. They try to tell the truth. They're, they're, they, they're intelligent. They have quick ability to understand things. And some of them want to hear the word of the Lord. Now we have the tension in the passage. We have Paul and Barnabas, the messengers of God, face-to-face with Elamus and the proconsul that needs Jesus. And Elymas starts to resist. He starts to speak against Paul and Barnabas. In the apostolic world of the first century, the Holy Spirit came upon Paul and said that you would realize that someone that called themselves the son of salvation, instead of worshiping Jesus, they try to block Jesus. They are blind. They are groping around. They don't know where they're going and they really need someone to lead them. That's why Paul, by the power of the Spirit, it's why the Spirit of God, not Paul, but the Spirit of God blinded a false prophet to show us that no matter how humanly powerful they might be, they're blind. And I want to pray that all of your eyes are open this morning. And what opens our eyes is that we believe what the Old Testament scriptures say about Jesus. We believe that it predicted Jesus would die for our sins. We believe that it predicted that Jesus would rise again from the dead. It predicted that he would become the king of kings and lord of lords, that he would sit at his father's right hand until all of his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And everyone else is just groping around blind. We close with the incredible wondrous reality that surges Paulus to the Gentiles, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, Sergius Paulus believed in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? And I want to be part of it, don't you? I want to be part of seeing Sergius Paulus's, or Pauli, in business and in education, even especially during the coming year in politics. I want to see the same new birth, the same belief. Now, here's something really concrete as we close. I covet for you to get caught up in the book of Acts. Because if you do, you're going to get to be 90 years of age if the Lord gives you that time. And you're going to still be on fire. 